a shot in the glass and then heard mama screaming. A father shot to death days before Christmas as his pregnant wife and children watched. It's a crime that would rock a small Tennessee town, but would change the course of history. I'm Leslie Ackerson. And I'm John North. This is Appalachian Unsolved, the podcast. Seventy years ago, it was 1940s, it was December the 6th, I believe, Mr. and Mrs. Lutz, the six kids, Mrs. Lutz is pregnant, they're all sitting in the room together, about to go to sleep, uh, listening to a radio program. I think it was a religious program they were listening to. They had wanted to go out to a concert earlier that night, I don't I don't think that, that kind of fell through, so they ended up just going back home and listening to the radio, and I think the program had just ended when the first, or the shot was fired. Several shotgun pellets blasted through their window into the bedroom, and they hit the father, and all these, these kids are sitting around watching their father take these bullets. I was seven, and I remember the night he was killed. Me and my older brother was sleeping under the window that they shot through. I can't imagine having something like that happen to you. you you're minding your own business. You're a kid. The oldest kid, I think, was nine. Next is seven. Uh, it's the comfort of your own home, and this sh- window is completely blasted away by the shotgun. And some of the old newspapers actually recall that when they looked at JT's body, he was hit in the forehead and that some 25 pellets were recovered from his chest. Yep, and Mrs. Lutz Hazel also was hit. Uh, I think she was hit in the hand, maybe in the shoulder. Later, they'd find something like 77 pellets in the wall behind him. And she actually thought, uh, she didn't know what it was at first, but JT carried a pistol, I think, in his overalls, and she thought maybe that gun had actually gone off that he held. This is obviously an extremely painful moment that these children, as they have grown up, have carried with them. Many of them have passed on, but several of the children are still alive and spoke with this, uh, spoke with us about remembering this night. And for Tommy, he was the second oldest. It's very clear, but he's kind of tried to push all this away. It, what, what struck me when we talked to Tommy and Stella was there was this kind of quietness about them, as if there was this part of their lives that they still really couldn't talk about, didn't want to talk about. Even though it's 70 years later, they still had a hard time even thinking about it. I try to shut a lot of it out, you know. So the father, J.T. Lutz, you mentioned, worked at a sawmill, and he had a pretty big role to play coming up that may have factored into a a motive for someone to want to harm him. Some wire stolen from a church house in Hawkins County, and Dad worked with this cooter fella, worked for him, and he was with the ones that stole it, you know. So the law found out who got it, and he come to Dad first, and Dad was going to turn state's evidence to keep him go to pen with the rest of them. Right. Apparently, he had knowledge, personal knowledge, about the theft of some wire, I think, from a church in Hawkins County. You know, unfortunately, with the passage of so much time, it's all we know is kind of the mythology about this at this point. But he had this knowledge, and we learned that he actually had given some evidence to state prosecutors that they were going to be using in a case in the future, and that that's what ultimately probably cost him his life. 
What's interesting is Tommy, even young at the time, seven years old, remembers he knew his father had been warned that his life might be in danger. Yeah, you clearly the family knew that there was this threat out there. I think we'd gone back and read some old newspaper reports that indicated maybe even a year beforehand he'd been offered some amount of money to keep his mouth shut, but he was not that kind of a guy. And a fellow warned my grandmother about a week before he's killed. She said, tell JT to leave, they're going to kill him. Story here, sawmill operator slain, his wife seriously wounded by a gun blast, couple shot through window of their home. Terrible situation. When this crime occurred, there was a lot of commotion. You have these six kids, you have this pregnant woman who ends up having to go to the hospital for her shots as well, and then you have local authorities all around the home. And in Greene County, in this small town, this is gonna be front page news. It's gonna be a big deal, and it's gonna attract the, the journalist from the local paper, the Greenville Sun, and to do a story on it. It was a rainy night, and he got word that there had been a brutal murder. It ended up being called at the time one of the most callous murders in the history of Greene County. And it was also a huge mess. It was botched, I think we learned basically from the stop, from the start. You had uh, this rainy night, uh, the small little cabin way out in the country, the authorities get there and they immediately basically screw up the crime scene. They're trampling all around uh, the outside of the cabin. We know obviously the shot had been fired from outside, but any hope they'd had for something like footprints was gone because everybody was trampling around right outside where the window was. And it was a muddy night. There were a couple of deputies already there. They had walked around the house and they had walked over the place by the window where the killer had fired the shotgun blast through the one. The footprints of the killer would probably have been the best possible evidence that would have been able to convict someone of that crime. But it was, it was just, it was a mess. One of the first journalists on the scene was John Jones. He was a, a young reporter at the time, went out there with a photographer, and he realized that. He'd been around these crime scenes enough to realize, oh no, there's footprints all around this area. This is not going to end well. It's too early in the investigation for a mess like this. It's really interesting to me. It was Mr. Jones who was not raised, was not trained to be a reporter. It's He got into essentially the family business. That's always kind of struck me that here was a guy who was learning the business. He's the first reporter on the scene and he immediately says they are messing this up big time and it's really it's fascinating how that resonates in the family history today. Mr. Jones has since passed. His son is still alive and was able to pull out some old articles for us to see from this crime and read a little bit about the stories uh, that his dad wrote that day. And the big thing that, you know, caught his attention, his father's attention, was back in the 1940s in this rural county, the law enforcement, even though they were out there botching and tramping mud, they didn't really realize what they were doing. They were young, good old boys. They didn't have the kind of training that law enforcement has today. And this kind of thing, the sloppy investigation stuff was really common and you know Mr. Jones it bothered him that this was continuing to happen. Dad was outraged by what had happened to Mr. Lutz and there they had these six children one on the way did take it personally and they they felt a burden to try to help the Lutz family. Yeah he was angry and I think he the family said as soon as he went back to the paper he not only wrote the story for the paper, but 
I think pretty much right that moment, he made up his mind that he was going to have to do something. Something needed to be done to right this wrong. He didn't know if he could help the Lutzes, but something had to be done so that other rural families that might get caught up in something like this wouldn't be essentially victimized by bad law enforcement. The governor almost immediately, Governor Browning, almost immediately posted a $500 reward for information leading to the conviction of the person who had done it. But the newspaper also contributed to that. And it was December, Christmas was coming, and they, they launched a fundraising drive to raise money for the Lutz family. So as Jones continued uh, to kind of keep the story alive with his articles in the paper while law enforcement continued to hunt for a killer, the first thing that he really did was just start a drive, start people um, continuing to give donations to the paper, the Greenville Sun, to help this family have a, a nice Christmas. There were a lot of kids that we've already established they were pretty poor, and now they've lost their one, their sole father figure who provided for the family. They, they didn't have a lot. These, these folks had nothing, and... Uh, basically, I think they were living in that cabin because their mom's family had that cabin. And so when their dad died uh, at age 28 or so, they had nothing. Their mother didn't work. We're talking about 1949. Women just weren't the sole breadwinners back then. Uh, you, you, communities ended up having to raise people, and that's essentially what happened in this case. The community, at least for a while, raised the Lutzes. I remember the Christmas presents. My older brother and I got a toy piston holster. I don't know what anybody else got. I don't remember, but I know we got a cap pistol and a holster for Christmas. They got them gifts. The kids still remember them. It was a good, happy Christmas for them, but as soon as the holiday ended, their story continued with no answers. The police weren't able to move forward in this case. They brought a couple people in for questioning, but were never really able to nail down anything solid. We know that that night or the next morning, the Greene County Sheriff asked for help from Jefferson County. They brought a bloodhound in who tracked through the night in the rain and went about a mile away to a nearby home, and they actually arrested the guy there and then soon after that, they also took into custody two young cousins in their early 20s. But like you say, nothing ever came of it. I think some $900 was raised in reward money, went uncollected. Yeah, I recall a couple of fellows lived across the mountain. They questioned them quite often, but I don't think either one of them would have done it because even though they didn't have the best reputation, they wouldn't take one's life. And it's the same story. 70 years later now, it's still sat there, unsolved, no answers. The kids are grown up. You know, many of them have gone on. They live normal lives. They've uh, enjoyed life growing up. Some have passed away. The family home where all this happened uh, has had to be knocked down, uh, I believe, just unstable. But some of the family still call Green County home. The siblings live out there. And Tommy still tends to the cemetery where his mother and father are buried just down the road from his home. This, I don't know if it struck you this way, but I really thought this was fascinating when we went up there. You have the site where the shooting occurred, now gone. They tore that down. Then there's the cabin where they lived with her mother's family. Uh, we went there. That's gone now, too. They ended up tearing that down. That's a beautiful setting there, kind of in a hollow. And then probably quarter mile away is the cemetery. 
where JT and Hazel are buried, along with other Lutz and Pattison family members. And then you have Tommy, who lives not too far away from that as well in his own home. Tommy now in his, what, 70s, I guess. All of this is within, uh, all of it is within like a half mile in this beautiful holler. Everyone connected with it are probably dead now, so, you know, it'll never be revealed who actually did the crime. I think even though something very sad happened to them at a very young age, this has still always been home. They felt safe, surrounded in those hills. That's a place that still has good memories for them, even though they do have this, this tragic memory in their lives. It's, it's still home for them. Yeah, as one of them said, the community tends to look out for uh, everybody else. And keep in mind, this is a little community that is roughly 10 miles west of Greenville. So it's not like you are just down the street from the, from the town itself. You are a long ways out in the country. So if you grew up in that kind of a place, you learned to rely on your neighbors and you assumed you would all be safe. So even though this family has gone on, they've lived their lives, they, they've had good lives, there's still that lingering moment where this has been unsolved. But one really fascinating thing is even though their father, uh, they were never able to catch his killer, his murder was just one step in something that would change the way things were done for everyone in Tennessee. It's a unique story. I mean, we cover unsolved homicides all the time in Appalachia, the, the fascinating stories, tragic stories. This one you, you is unlike any other because as a result of it, it led to the creation of a statewide law investigation agency. It's fascinating. And the Lutz case was so egregious, and the investigatory aspect of it was so mishandled that it was the final straw for him. We talked about the passion that John Jones Sr. had. His son has mentioned it, that he was bothered by the way the crime scene was botched, the lack of expertise, and he wanted to change that. He helped raise money for the Lutes, took care of them, but he knew he needed to go a step further. So he got with all his buddies at the Tennessee Press Association and was like, we need to create something. And that's where they kind of came up with the base idea of the TBI before it was even called that. Keep in mind, this is back in the day where television is really not a factor. Your prime media is going to be newspapers. Newspapers were king, not just in the state of Tennessee, but basically most every other state in the country. And the Tennessee Press Association, through these newspaper editors, could flex some muscle, could get the governor's attention and say, you need to do something about this. Almost universally, rural county sheriffs did not have formal training in law enforcement techniques. Tennessee needed an FBI-type investigative agency to assist rural law enforcement officers in solving serious crimes. And it did take time. It took a lot of resources and years of pushing, but eventually they were able to form this kind of basic investigative agency that has grown into what the TBI is today. It took a couple years to polish it, refine it, and, and make it be as good as it is, but essentially, it was nothing before they came along. It was nothing at all. And as you say, when the first started, you had what I think in the early 50s, there was some legislation created which allowed for uh, a couple uh, TBI agents to be assigned in the three grand divisions of the state of Tennessee. It's nothing like what it is today. Think about the TBI headquarters in Nashville, which is a multi-million dollar, multi-floor place that has labs. It's got mock crime scene rooms and a mock courtroom. It has all kinds of things. It is top of the line. 
and it all started because of this case. He was a very courageous person. If he felt that something was the right thing to do, he basically would plunge ahead and do it. And today, it's funny, Jones says it's really a legacy of his father's. They called his dad the father of the TBI. That's what he's known at. He lived to be 101. It was a huge moment in his life career to be able to push that. But really, thanks to the Lutzes as well, like this horrible thing that they had endured led to this. I, and I think Mr. Jones Sr. said this was his proudest moment. This is the thing he was most happy about. And that's quite something to say for a, a small-town newspaper man whose family includes a Pulitzer Prize winner. It's important, I think, to remember the Lutzes because their tragedy also helped you know, fulfill this agency. And that was really important to one TBI director, Larry Wallace. He really saw that what they had endured um, was the first was the first step as we mentioned if had that not had happened this uh, snowball wouldn't have have happened and he wanted to make sure that they were recognized and they knew how important their father's life was for the agency and as a result of the tragedy that they encountered and went through and, and, and the scars that it left for life uh, at the same time uh, their family was so instrumental in helping other families across the state and uh, and I, I said it's something you can be very proud of. It's probably worth mentioning for anybody who doesn't realize this, but pretty much in the state of Tennessee, with the exception of the major cities, Knoxville, Memphis, Nashville, maybe Chattanooga, pretty much any time there's a major crime or a significant crime, the TBI is going to get involved. For example, if you have a rural county, guess what? TBI is going to get involved. It just happens. It's part of what they do because most rural agencies and most of our state still would be considered sort of rural or small. They don't have the they don't have the capacity to deal with a significant crime like a officer-involved shooting or a homicide. And I think Larry Wallace, the former director, during several years recognized that. You know, when the new uh, big, beautiful agency was built in Nashville in 2000, he recognized that as a moment to bring both John Jones Sr. and the Lutz's families up to recognize them and, and let them know that, that they respected what they had given you know, their lives for, what their father had, had ended up dying for. It's the, the genesis of the, of the idea for a statewide Bureau of Investigation. And uh, I thought it was important that, that these individuals have an opportunity to come down and, and, and be recognized, frankly. Imagine this is a family. I mean, these are good people. That These are basically country folks. These are sort of salt-of-the-earth people. They are not people who are used to any kind of attention whatsoever being given to them still. And the TBI wants to bring them in for the dedication of their brand new headquarters. They were almost speechless, I think it's fair to say, when that happened. Stella Louise, one of the children that was just a toddler when her father died, she got emotional when we asked her about it. She says she still treasures the plaque that they gave her, uh, her and her family, uh, as a gift to kind of honor what her father's life had done. We toured the building, and then he gave us all a pen, and then they gave us a plaque. The um, Lutz family has never forgotten the TBI. They've never forgotten Larry Wallace for asking them to be part of it. It's, it's fascinating how this terrible event sort of then becomes weaved into the lives of not just them but lots of other people. For example, Larry talked about how uh, he assumes and expects that every TBI agent understands the history of how the TBI came about and the fact that there was a family once upon a time in Greene County 
who lost a family member in a homicide that remains unsolved, and that's how we got here. They're an impressive family. They're a good family, and this shouldn't have happened to them. And Larry was so dedicated that, that I believe even 50 years after the crime occurred when he first met the Lutzes and they had some inkling, had gotten some evidence that they might uh, be able to reopen it, Larry followed up on that. He drove up to Greene County to look into uh, some sources of some information that Stella had received. Yeah, Stella was working at the hospital. I think that was basically her career. Uh, a, a very good, successful career. She's now retired, working at Tacoma Hospital in Greene County, and she heard or gotten a tip from somebody that a family member knew who had done the killing and that we could find some evidence if somebody wanted to go look maybe down a well in some property. I, yeah, I was actually working at Tacoma Hospital, and uh, this lady was a patient of of ours and of course I, I didn't know her but I knew her niece and I had went into the room and she asked who I was and her niece told her and the lady began to cry so after she got calmed down you know she told me she even drew a picture of the the house that they lived in and the well supposedly where he had put guns in we don't know so i kind of just sat on that for probably um maybe two years you know and so when we heard mr wallace was going to retire I called him and he said, well, you need to come down. You know, of course, they came up here and they interviewed the lady. And she was still, she uh, later developed Alzheimer's, but she was still, you know, alert at that time. And so she told him what she had told me. And they actually came up here with a unit and our oldest brother, Orville and Tommy, was there too. And well, all, all of our brothers, uh, he, uh, we went down there and he actually found the well. And they put a camera in the well and they saw some like gun stalks, but you know, they couldn't really, they couldn't really prove anything. She just said that he come in and told her and their mother that, uh, you know, that he had done it, and if they ever told, you know, he would kill them. Let's see, I think he was her brother, maybe. And anyway, she went to Ohio shortly after that and lived there till she returned to Greene County. And um, I don't know if she ever told that story or not. So, but after that, we just kind of you know, closed it. There were a number of theories, and, and, and as in all cases that are unsolved, the years go by, the theories multiply. And that's exactly what Larry did. He went up there, they searched, they didn't end up finding anything, but he was still so dedicated and knew that this was something that was so important to this family and so important just as a TBI to show that these cases don't die. It doesn't matter if they're 10 years old, 20 years old, now 70 years old. If there's still something worth looking into, it's important for those family members. That's one of the last things I think he told us that he did on the job was come up to Greene County 
to try and see if he could help it out. And I remember him saying that he was hoping so much that something would develop from this, that they could finally solve it, and he was disappointed. But I don't know your impression in talking to him, but what struck me was he was like, we will never forget, we will never, forget. We will never give up on this. Mm-hmm. You don't know what the future holds, but you hope that there could still be an answer despite the fact that it's seven de- decades old. But you still have the hope that this has gone on to change the lives of countless other people, other crimes that could have ended differently had the TBI never been created. It's sad that I think the family even acknowledges um, that probably whoever was involved in this probably is dead. If they were, say, in their 20s, 70 years ago, they'd be in their 90s now. But they still hold out hope there's the possibility. But again, they're so humble and so unassuming, it's, it's just remarkable how they've carried themselves. Just good people. Good people. Been so happy if we, if we could have done something to bring some closure to this family. It was a poor, modest, rural family, and they needed help. They needed help, and I, and I, I view that as a symbol of the entire agency and what, we're, what we were created for. It doesn't matter that it's been almost 70 years since somebody shot and killed J.T. Lutz. There's still the possibility that his killer could be brought to justice, and that's the point of this. We want to hear from you. We want you to send in your tips if you have more information. Any information can help. Anything that anybody knows can be shared anonymously and really can help authorities put some closure for this family and their loss. You can reach the TBI at 1-800-TBI-FIND.